This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network, where every few weeks we explore a new book in the field of Islamic studies. This week, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sarah Savant. Dr. Sarah Savant, Associate Professor at the Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations at the Aga Khan University in London, addresses important questions about conversion among Persian peoples from the 9th to 11th century in her work, The New Muslims of Post-Conquest Iran. Memory is the centerpiece of her study. In the first half of her work, Savant's analysis of memory, known as Numa history, coalesced around certain sites of memory which can include people, such as Salaman al-Farasi, places and events, with particular attention paid to conquest narratives. These cases demonstrate how Persian identity was woven into the framework of pre-Islamic history and early Islam. However, remembering is not the only aspect that helped shape Persian Muslim identity. Forgetting is equally important is an equally important element, according to Savant. Forgetting allowed incompatible features of Persian identity and history to be limited. The second half of her work highlights important strategies of forgetting, such as the, the replacing of one past with an alternative account or the use of unfavorable elements of pre-Islamic Persia. Savant's exploration of memory and its impact upon Persian Muslim identity helps to answer important questions about conversion in early Islam. Readers, both scholars of Islam and historians in general, will find Savant's work elucidating. Welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Today we're talking with Dr. Savant about her new work, The New Muslims of Post-Conquest Iran. How are you doing, Dr. Savant? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being on with us today. your work uh, is a very fascinating study on um, memory and the shaping or how memory shapes, uh, you know, identity and in particular uh, Iranian identity. Um, and, but before we get a chance to really delve into your work, uh, it would be great if you could tell our audience a little bit about, um, you know, your academic and your biography. Uh, sure. Uh, I finished my Ph.D. at the university or at Harvard University. I did my master's degree at the University of Chicago I, my training was in history of religions, and at that time, my emphasis was probably during my PhD equally on history and religion as two fields of inquiry. I did exams in history, and I did exams under the Committee on the Study of Religion. My advisors were uh, Roy Motahedah, who is really a leading scholar in early Islamic Iran, and uh, William Graham, who works on 
religion, topics of Islamic religion, including the Quran and tafsir traditions, hadith. So I came from this sort of Islamic studies background um, that was very much, though, imbued with history as a mode of inquiry. The, um, the book comes out of this environment, um, and also, I should say, out of my original training at the University of Chicago in history of religions, and also with an interest in comparative historiography. I did a lot of my work not only dealing with Islamic history and Islamic religion, but also I did exams in Buddhism and focused a lot on South Asian and Southeast Asian Buddhism. So I came to the topic with a desire to find a way of doing history of religion. That was my sort of initial goal. And it took me a while to come to the actual book as it is now. I had a Fulbright scholarship in my PhD and I played around with different topics that would allow me to combine these disciplinary or field folk foci. Um, and I learned Persian and Sanskrit and Arabic along the way. But the, uh, the, this book really is the fruits of, of work after my PhD and after my original training. Um, I, did, I finished my PhD in 2006. And after that, spent a little bit of time at the University of California in Berkeley, which is where I was living, before I moved to London in 2007 and began working uh, for the Aga Khan University here. And for the Aga Khan University, a lot of my work has involved teaching history. And most of my students um, are from Muslim-majority contexts, with a high number of them from Iran, Syria, and South Asia. So when I teach, um, and I teach early Islamic history, I also teach the history of the Quran um, as a sort of historiography class, I find myself often dealing with the reception of early Islamic history. And when we tackle topics such as, um, you know, how was the text of the Quran composed? You know, what was the period for movement um, between oral and written? What was the relationship between orality and writing? How was it received outside of the Arabian Peninsula? Um, And then the seminal events of early Islamic history, um, which we put into a late antique framework, which I think is a very critical intervention in the field, um, begun you know, 30 years ago. Um, when we do this, a lot of my students have very, um, have very real and, uh, how do I say, existential connections to the, to the material that I teach. And that was really sort of the environment in which this book was written, even though it deals with Iran and the period of conversion, so between the 9th and 11th centuries, a lot of what was going on in the background um, really, for me, pertained to how different peoples come to understand their own history. So in that context, it seemed obvious to make this connection, which I do in the book, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a few minutes, between the way and meaning of history to a group and the way its identity is formed. So this was the kind of context in which I worked. And so then just, you know, delving right into it, um, you know, through your introduction, you begin talking about the importance of, you know, memory mm-hmm. and its shaping of identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I approached, so I, I began with a question, which was a question that did originate from the period of my PhD, which was dealing with, we have no apparent evidence or very little apparent evidence for Iran's conversion to Islam. This is a statement that has often been made. Um, We have uh, Richard Bullitt's uh, book on conversion, um, which makes it quite eloquently 
we also have a generation of historians who have frequently said, well, if we only had missionary texts or if we only had more documentary evidence that could speak to the issue of Islamization, we would be much able to better able to address how this occurred. And I hope I'm answering your question, but where, where I'm heading is, is to point out that to me, the, the issue of conversion didn't require sort of census data um, coming at it again from a history of religions point of view. I had in mind works like Devin DeVeves' book, Islamization and Native Religion in the Golden Horde. Um, I had in mind works on the Theravada tradition. Um, I had in mind um, the, the spreading of Sanskrit literature across South and Southeast Asia. I, I didn't think we needed to have necessarily census data to address the question. And I thought we could probably come at it from another angle, which was to consider the totality of writing that was being produced in the time period during which we have Iran converting to Islam and to accept as a starting point, at least a point of um, reasonable conjecture that Iran converted in the period of the 9th to 11th century, which was more or less the, the consensus in the field um, following Bullet and who worked on biographical dictionaries and names. So from that, I thought we could try to produce some sort of analysis of the change in perception of Iranians in this period. And memory and tradition provided, for me, two twin concepts to approach the problem. I should point out by way of preface that um, for those who don't aren't very familiar with early Islamic history or with Arabic literature, Persian literature, the period um, from approximately the mid-8th century onwards is really when you have the earliest Arabic narrative text. We have documentary evidence from earlier. Um, so there's documentary evidence, although not in Iran, anywhere near what we have, for example, for Egypt and the Hapiri. So I thought that if we were to look at the narratives in the period that coincided um, the narrative text that coincide with the emergence of Arabic, and then somewhat later, um, you know, in the 10th century with Persian, that we might be able to get some sort of sense of what the concerns were of people writing about Iran. And this could be Iranians or it could be non-Iranians, but there should be, one would think, this is my starting premise, um, some sort of change in the way in which people wrote about seminal events of early Islamic history. So if these events occurred, let's say, in the 7th century, or pre-Islamic history, if we wish, you know, we have lots and lots of texts. The Arabic historical tradition from 750, let's say, to 1200, is one of the largest up to the period of its own day. So, I mean, it's only exceeded and only possibly by the literature of Tang China or of Sanskrit. So we have an enormous body of material. So what can we see in changes in this material over the time period? was my starting question. And memory, I think, provides a useful way into it, the literature on memory, scholarship on memory, as well as scholarship on tradition. And by tradition, I have in mind, um, maybe in old-fashioned sense, uh, there's been a lot of work, as I'm sure your listeners know, on tradition, particularly beginning in the 1980s. And I, I took up the notion of Edward Schill's, which focuses on rep repetition, and the core idea about tradition being in this notion of what is repeated. So can, we can speak about traditional forms without notion of, let's say, value or truth claims. 
Um, we can think about traditions simply by thinking of issues of repetition. So a bowl can be traditional just as a narrative text. And once you begin to consider what gets repeated and how, um, and then you put that into a social context, into an historical context, um, and you begin to think about the collective agreements that form around what gets repeated, that's where I think you come into the memory literature and into the notion of memory. So I was very interested in memory and particularly the repetition of traditions um, as a way of seeing and tracing out changes um, with regards to Iranians. So the, the major sort of crux of the book is to take different traditions about the pre and early Islamic past and to perform comparative operations on them to compare different perspectives um, as they evolve over time in terms of stratigraphy, but also in terms of context. Because I think when you, you know, for example, take a story about the conquest and you see it written in one place in one way, but then look, for example, within the earliest historiographical tradition um, that was written, let's say, pre, um, you know, in the early, let's say, part of the ninth century, and you compare that to an 11th century account, you get a very different perspective. And I found that starting from the middle of the ninth century onwards, and only then, um, do you really get a sense that um, the feelings, subjective experience of Iranians is being reflected um, in the traditions. So you can see sort of a change in the way in which groups are forming notions of the past, really from the middle of the ninth century, which I think fits rather well with what earlier scholarship, you know, in particular, you know, would have to say. And then what becomes interesting is what kinds of identity um, can you see? And I tried to engage there with a lot of the literature on nationalism um, in the sense that, you know, what does it mean to speak of an identity? I found the literature on national very stimulating because it, it tackles head on some of the assumptions that are often made about Iran. So this notion of an Iranian um, sort of eternal identity I think needs to be addressed and critiqued heavily. And I do this in the book. That's sort of a sub theme that runs through all throughout the whole book. I deal with Persians as an ethnic group, um, as a more salient category, but I also don't want to posit an eternal sense of Persianness either. So I try to speak about the way in which identity gets constructed. And we can see this forming in different sort of narrative narrative traditions, including local ones, you know, where where identity isn't Persian per se, but it may come down to a matter of street, you know, and, and very local sorts of senses of belonging. Wonderful. Um, so if you could, would you uh, start by kind of uh, leading us through the first section of your work where you kind of highlight a number of different, I think, uh, you know, kind of cases or examples mm -hmm. of what you're talking about? Sure. I should probably, I should probably outline the structure of the book first because that will allow your listeners to understand how it all fits together. <laughs> so um, it was one, you know, when, when you're writing a book and you know maybe what you want to do in principle, there's always an aha moment, I think, when you see the structure and then you can understand what realistically you can accomplish in a book and how you're going to go about it. And I had a very discreet moment where I realized that what I was talking about was, um, and what I was thinking about was really two things, not one. Um, it was not just memory, but forgetting. <laughs> So the, the book is structured into two halves and they, um, one is the first half deals with memory and remembrance and the second, um, half deals with forgetting as another aspect we can say of, of memory. 
and these are not opposed practices. Um, so within this, I, I took up um, different topics, and each one of the halves of the book um, contains three chapters, and they are, um, you know, they parallel each other. So the first chapter of part one deals with remembering the pre-Islamic past. Um, the second, the first chapter of part two, the fourth chapter of the book, deals with forgetting the pre-Islamic past. And similarly, the second chapter and the fifth chapter mirror each other. Um, the second chapter deals with the early Islamic past. And then um, the fourth chapter, or the third chapter, I'm sorry, um, deals with the period of the conquests. So, and similarly for chapter six. Um, so that running through the seventh century. Um, in terms of what I actually discuss then in each of the chapters, um, I, again, I try to trace out common themes, but a, a major useful device I found was Pierre Nora's notion of sites of memory as um, not physical sites per se, although they may be physical, but as locations in memory, which society debates, um, meaningful location, locales, which could be the conquest as a whole. It could be, um, you know, a major battle. It could be a person, the figure of a person. It could be a physical landmark. It could be a book, you know, that the Quran is a site of memory in the sense that these are, these are um, topics around which um, memory is significant and you have therefore contest and debate so again, getting to the notion that what I wanted with the notions of tradition and memory was to find salient topics in which I could sense social um, connections being, you know, social identities being articulated and debated. Um, this notion of sites of memory was very important. So throughout all six chapters, then I, I choose these stories that I go through and I, I try to perform these comparative operations on them to see, you know, how a story was told in one context versus another and what that might say about the transformation going on with regards to Iran. Um, I also should say, <laughs> since we're, I'm trying to bring out this notion of identity, that I use the term Iran not in the sense of a, an eternal Iran, but in the sense that we need to have a vocabulary and a term. And our language is always limited. We need to have a word to refer to a geography that's centered on a plateau and also to a whole variety of peoples that had you know, common languages and, and historical relationships with one another that don't necessarily presuppose a notion of Iranianness as an identity, but rather a sort of historical set of cultural connections. So I, I use the term Iran and Iranians in this um, rather more um, other sense. In other words, it's, it's not a term that is necessarily held by the people about whom I'm writing in the period, but we need a way to refer to um, people who have, who did have various different types of connections. Whereas the term Persians I use in the book um, very specifically for an identity, which I think was salient in the period. Um, would you like me to go through the chapters? Would that be the most useful or how? Yeah, that would be, that would be wonderful. Okay. So um, in the first half, in the first half of the book, there's three chapters. The first is entitled uh, prior connections to Islam. The second is Muhammad's Persian command companion, Salman al-Farisi. And the third chapter is finding meaning in the past. And if I can say with regards to the first chapter, uh, this, this chapter did go back to some of my earlier work um, in my PhD. In my PhD, I wrote about um, genealogies of the prophets prior to Muhammad and how those genealogies incorporated Persians. 
And again, you can see a tracing out of um, Persians being incorporated into the main frame stories of Islam over time. So, for example, um, you have the figure of Ishmael, who's very important um, to you know, Arab and Islamic notions of genealogy and insofar as the Arabs are supposed to have descended from Ishmael. Well, the Persians, um, according to some periods um, and some authors in the time period I look at, posited Isaac as the Persian's father. Others said that maybe Noah was the Persian's father. So these are sort of ethnic um, ethnic explanations for the origins of Persians as a people. We find this throughout you know, all of historical sort of writing and different ethnic groups. It's one of the main um, topics that Anthony Smith looks at when he looks at the ethnic origins of nations, how different groups, um, such as the Franks, will describe their origins in genealogical terms. And in this chapter, I, well, I didn't use the dissertation. I, I put the dissertation aside and started afresh, but I dealt largely with a lot of these kinds of ethnic explanations um, that deal with the pre-Islamic past. So um, I deal with this Isaac um, narrative. I deal with Noah as a father to the Persians and, and what these might have meant. Um, I also deal with one of the major authors of whose work is important for what I'm investigating, that is the situation of Iran and Persians um, in the period, and that's um, Muhammad Ibn Jarir al-Tabari. So Tabari's history is one of our major sources for early Islamic history. Um, it's perhaps overused. It's a fair argument. But if one wants to look at the way in which Iranian history is synthesized to account for Persians, it's, an, it's a very important source. Um, it's cited frequently afterwards, um, and he also incorporates all sorts of layers of earlier, now lost historical writing. So he dies um, in, the be- in the 923, so the beginning of the 10th century. Uh, so I deal a lot with Tabri in this chapter. I introduce him, so to speak, as a figure uh, about which we, I will return to throughout the book because he's just very useful. He also, his work is translated into English. So for readers, I think it's useful to have him as well. Um, I also look then at local historical traditions, um, in particular, as reflected in some of the geographical literature. And I, I take um, the examples of Hamadan and Nihawand um, and look at Ibn al-Faqih, who's a major geographer, and some of what, he's, what he has to say. So I try to balance these sort of major historical writers, such as Tabari, against other traditions. Um, I try to think about what prior connections are being posited the, the, the issue of the, the prophet stories is that what you have essentially is a, is a way of making Persians um, and other groups, Persians are by no means unique, as part of the larger frame story of Islam. They have to be accounted for somewhere. And, you know, it's a very useful and common, it's common strategy to put, um, let's say, a new group into the earlier layers of a longer living groups, um, narrative. So, uh, you know, if Persians, if Persians are descending, descending from Isaac, the, the, the broader significance is that they have a, a place in the larger story of Islam. This is sometimes spoken of in terms of Islam with a small eye and Islam with a big eye, the sense that Islam as the universal religion, um, revealed to monotheistic groups throughout all of history um, is this Islam with a small eye versus Islam as is the historical religion that came with Muhammad as the big eye Islam. So 
um, you know, when Persians become part of Islam in the bigger sense of Islam with maybe a small I, they become part of the universal message. And for Iranians, one can see how this would be satisfying. You know, if, if in reality, um, Islam was born in a historical time and context that begins with maybe we can say the late antique framework, if we wish to frame it that way, but in a very specific place of Arabia, then um, Iran becomes not so marginal. It becomes more part of the central story if they also relate to the long history of prophets that precede Muhammad. So that's the power of a lot of what I'm discussing. And there's also a discuss- I also deal with some of the physical um, you know, monuments that arise from this, including Persepolis um, and stories that then incorporate it into Islamic stories. Good. Um, how should I proceed? What would be most useful and interesting? I, uh, I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about, um, particularly the second chapter of your first uh, part one. Um, I thought it was really interesting, the stories of, uh, you know, of Odyssey, mm. considering and how just that identity, you know, how he becomes part of the, you know, the broader history of Islam, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So, right. So Salman al-Farisi is this companion of the prophet who, in the earliest historical tradition, he's a site of memory, I should first say. He's, he's I think, a, a quintessential example of one of Pierre Nora's notions of sites of memory. Um, there's lots of, lots written on him. He's in the earliest historical writings, we have him in the Sira or prophetic bi- biographical tradition. And what I do here is one of these sort of comparisons. I look at the Sira. Um, I consider how Ibn Hisham or Ibn Ishaq uh, deal with him. And I point out that he represents something quite different, I think, in the early historical writing, meaning the, the historical writing preceding the middle of the ninth century um, up to that period, perhaps. Um, in this earlier writing from the 8th century, beginning of the 9th century, what you have is Salman and a lot of other figures who are non-Arab Muslims. And they represent something of the universality of the Islamic message, but their particularity is not so important. In fact, um, one could argue that it's denied <laughs> by, by the stories uh, that the, the importance is that when one converts to Islam, one ceases being what one was before, and that one takes up an Arab identity in particular. And the whole notion um, in early Islam of um, the Mawali, or the convert to become attached to a tribe, or perhaps um, to an individual within a tribe, you know, becomes into play with the notion that we all have to somehow become woven into the early Arabic, early Arab um, family of, of Islam. But this isn't very satisfying, I argue, if, you, if you're an Iranian um, in the 10th or 11th centuries. And predictably, you find very different stories um, in, in later sources and an elaboration on his biography. So I focus on, in particular, Isfahan and his local histories and how Salman is made into a, a, an Isfahani and we, we learn a lot more about him. We learn about his family. We learn about um, all, well, his whole genealogy is provided. Um, there's far more stories. The narratives begin in his hometown um, and spend a lot more time there than they do in the other traditions. So we have this whole notion of uh, sort of hijra or migration of Salman from Isfahan to Arabia that's 
explored and, and taken up on, you know, in the Iranian traditions. Um, there's also predictably is a sort of interested element that emerges in the, in the sense that there's, um, there's biographical in the biographical tradition, we have legal contracts that are produced claiming privileges for Salman's descendants and also the descendants of his brother who maybe didn't convert to Islam. So it's quite interesting that these sort of probably spurious texts um, survive and are circulating in Iran in the 11th century. So I, I make something of that. And I think on a broader scale, this just highlights the plasticity of the past. Um, I'm, I'm aware that we're always dealing when we deal with history with a desire to know sort of stable points of, of what really happened. Um, you know, who was Salman? Was there a figure named Salman? Is he entirely the creation of imagination of later generations? And I, I don't, I don't want to claim that and nor do I want to assert that necessarily such contracts are spurious, but I do want to say that, there's something meaningful about the narrative tradition that's being exercised when people choose to report different aspects of it. And whatever may have existed in the first centuries of Islam. So by the time we get to Isfahan and its local historical tradition, I mean, we're speaking about roughly 400 years later. And, you know, we have a whole series of processes that are very difficult for us to discern that reshape the historical record and make a lot out of Salman's Persianness. So what I want to highlight is the choice element that goes into historical writing and that you can see this at play, you know, with figures such as Salman. So that's a lot of what that chapter deals with. To kind of, to ask a question that you maybe addressed and I possibly missed, um, you know, talking about Al-Tabari and his, uh, writing, you know, in his world history, universal history, really, mm-hmm. um, you know, how you spoke about folding in, um, you know, the, the Iranian past into like the larger perspective of the Muslim tradition. Mm-hmm. And the same thing here with uh, Al-Farisi. Mm. Uh, do you find that those authors tended to possibly, you know, uh, some of the later authors, you know, might, might have been Iranian themselves. Right. Shaping that. Did you, did you ever find that um, authors from, you know, more of the Arabian Peninsula or Egypt or Syria, some locale like that, um, did similar things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, yes and no. Tabari's okay. own identity is very difficult to sort of understand because he doesn't really talk about himself. Um, we do know he comes from Amul. He comes from the edge of the Caspian. Um, we know he works in Baghdad. Uh, so we know something on, along those lines, but his own consciousness of himself is, is very difficult to discern. And it's been proposed that even his family may have been part of the Arab settlements in the region. But I do think what you have is worker authors working in Iran approaching the material from a different perspective. Tabri is an interesting case because he is including the, our material for the pre-Islamic past. There's, there's obviously an historiographical tradition in Tabri that um, is drawn upon um, that ultimately in some fashion ends up in the Shahnameh. <laughs> so the, 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 
Sasanian royal history, the, the empire that rules Iran prior to its conquest and up to its conquest, a lot of that history is in Tabari. So we might say, as, as an Iranian, it makes sense that he would, he would use this history. But I would point out that he doesn't acknowledge it directly. <laughs> so um, this, I think, reflecting the sensibilities of his own time and also his own identity and his own sense of Islam and supersession of Islam of, of what went before. So what he does is he will, he speaks abundantly of the pre-Islamic Iranian past. He, he mentions all sorts of traditions pertaining to its earliest history. Um, we have sort of myths within it um, pertaining to what becomes known as Iranian national history later. Uh, we also have the royal Sasanian history. But the, the sources for it are not cited directly. So the Khudena Mag, the Sasanian Chronicle. Um, he may have had a version of it rendered into Arabic or probably Arabic, um, but we don't we don't know. I mean, he doesn't cite it. This is very different from what happens in the 10th and 11th centuries. The epistemology changes, and then we have much more direct claims about sources um, from Iranian history. So it's as if we have a revival of memory. In fact, uh, that what was used but disowned becomes recognized and cited. And that's, I think that's terribly interesting. So um, this is one of my larger points of curiosity is what, you know, how does one cite one's sources? And it definitely changes. And the fact of Iranians converting to Islam, I think, was a key factor in that. You know, your, one's audiences became um, Iranian Muslims, you know, far more, you know, than the earlier audience has had been of the historical tradition. So it's only natural that the ways of referring to sources would also change. Um, moving then forward from uh, the second chapter and then into the third, where you really talk then about uh, the conquest. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So, so this, again, it follows the chronology of pre-Islamic, early Islamic, and then slightly later early Islamic past. And the conquests are just fascinating as material to work with. And I have to say, of, of all the sections I wrote, I found this to be the most fun, <laughs> you know, this chapter and the sixth chapter in the book, uh, because the narratives are so full of, of detail and of, of imagination and of meaning that when one reads these accounts, one really finds the, the meaning-making enterprise come alive. And what I tried to do, and it's the, the conquest literature is found across all different types of, of genres of Arabic writing. So there's the regular histories, but we also have conquest material and, and tafsir and commentaries on the Quran. We have them in local histories. We have them in biographical dictionaries. We have them in the geographies. So the conquests are, as a theme, cover all variety of different types of writing, also in adab, and so in the sort of balletristic writings, um, particularly those affiliated with the court. So with the conquest, you can, I think, sense a whole life, you know, this issue of, and also because the conquests are manifestly about, um, about Iran when I look at these narratives. So I found, I found this a, a particularly enjoyable um, point to discuss. And one of the, in this chapter, one of the topics I tried to deal with was sort of the charismatic function of conquest writing the sense that, you know, this had to happen, that everything was leading towards it, that this was the, the divine hand at work in conquering Iran. And I found it very interesting that Iranians would some, say similar things. 
you know, that they would participate in the story that Iran's past was due to be overthrown and changed radically. And um, so I, I deal with the Futuh, the conquest literature. Um, I deal with this issue of the meaning of the conquests in the period. And I take some of, one of the examples I take is the Diwan of, of Omar. So the um, supposed list of, or likely a list of, of pension payments that were due to conquering armies. And there's a whole series of stories about how it came to be the case that there was a Diwan. And in the early tradition, we don't have direct citation or naming of, of the agents responsible for the idea. But And there's been a whole debate, you know, in the historic, modern historiographical literature about where the Diwans came from, were they a Sasanian institution, etc. And what's interesting is that, in, again, if you do this comparative operation on the traditions, you find, you find in later sources a very elaborate tradition explaining Sasanian origins of the tradition. So I think... Again, this represents a case of sort of um, writing Persians into the or writing Iranians into the historiographical tradition in a meaningful way for audiences. And the fact that this occurs in particular in the context of the Abbasid court is probably no accident. You know, so, you know, when when in the court, the importance of the Iranian courtly practices becomes subject to debate, it's useful to produce or to refine or to highlight, however you wish, these stories about the early origins of Iranian institutions. And it's one of my larger um, points to be made in my other work, which is that I think we need to consider the courtly literature um, produced in the Abbasid period about Iran as writing the story of Iranian presence at court. And so Often this literature is read in a very kind of literal way without attention to why, for example, um, it might wish, one might wish to posit that we had um, figures like Ibn al-Mukhafa, um, a major figure of the early Abbasid, late Umayyad periods, um, translating. You know, this is part of the, surely he translated, but there's also a whole way of, of winding in Persians, you know, into the early, pushing them back as far as possible into the early um, Islamic State. And the conquest literature, I think, also provides a case of this with the Diwan of Omar. Excellent. Okay. Um, is there anything that you'd like to, uh, that we missed from this first part um, I would just, that we should mention? I should probably mention Yastigurt's daughter. So I, I deal with the story of, um, which has been taken up very recently, um, of uh, Shah Banu, and there's a monument for her in Iran. And what I'm attempting to do in this section of the third chapter is to is to address um, a, a myth or a story of a narrative, a tradition um, about the moderns link as as showing the um, the origins of the Shia in Iran. And part of my purpose in this section, which is probably a little de- more detailed that I can get into now, is to argue that. Um, this wedding of the Shia to Iran cannot be supported um, by the Shah Banu tradition because it's a much more chaotic tradition in the period I look at. So um, I don't think you find this Iranian Shia connection being posited through lineal lineage um, until after the period that I investigate. So after the 12th century, and I make that argument, and that's and that kind of, you know that goes against some of the current scholarship on the matter, but. 
I make a lot out of the chaotic nature of the traditions surrounding Sharpanu. <laughs> so to say that there's not a simple story being told here. And that suggests that there's not a simple wedding of the Shia to the to Iran in the period. So that might receive some attention from Iranian readers. Well, we should leave some of the details then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pull some people in for that one. Um, well, then going ahead and then proceeding now to the second half of your work, which is as you had you know mentioned previously, each chapter is tied to the you know the first three chapters are tied to these latter three chapters, mm-hmm. and so now we're really getting into another part. Of, you know, I don't know how one would say, but part of memory, which is you know the forgetting element of memory, which I don't know if we would say the uh, the, you know, just the lack of memory <laughs> or intentional, I would assume as well. Right. Um, and in the fourth chapter, you actually talk about three specific, uh, I guess, tactics or maybe methods that were employed, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the purposes of, uh, I, I guess, maybe forgetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can clarify that for me. Sure, sure. So these these three chapters, as you've stated and I stated, mirror the first three chapters. And they really link. Uh, I, I found, I think the greatest, if I can say on the level of theory, I think the greatest contribution my book makes really is to this issue of forgetting. And I hope that's how it's read. The, I gave a lot of thought to forgetting. And um, I began with the notion, um, which was playfully put forward by Umberto Eco, that you can't just, if you want someone to forget something, you can't tell them to forget it. You can't just leave it out. Sometimes you can, but you normally, if it's important, you can't just leave it out. You have to find a way of dealing with it. And the best way to deal with elements that one doesn't want an individual or society to remember is by superimposition, is this term. So it's by overlaying new memory upon old. And that is essentially what I'm exploring in these three chapters, is methods of superimposition, (laughs) to use an echoes term. And I do this first by, in the fourth chapter, outlining um, some core ways that I see this happening. Um, and I, as you mentioned, there's three. I point out that there's, you can rewrite a Persian past as a purely local past rather than the end-all, be-all of all time. So a, a good example of this would be maybe the Shah Nahmeh, um, no longer becoming history with a big H, in which Iran is the center and everything else has to fold into it, but rather it's Iran's history. It's a, it's a relativizing effort to put Iran as a history alongside other ones. And so I, I talk about anthologizing. I talk about different ways in which this happens. Um, sometimes through um, you can synchronize different histories and so that you try to say, well, this one must relate to this one this way. Um, so you find Muslim authors doing this. You find them trying to, basically assign what Iranians was all of the past now to a very specific past, which is in their terms, normally Persian. Um, Secondly, I deal with in this fourth chapter with replacing a Persian past with the Muslim past. So I in particular highlight this author, Abu Hanifa Adinawari, who is quite fascinating because he takes Iranian materials and he makes them very much into um, a history um, of Islam which has been correctly said to be told from an Iranian point of view, but in which it's so firmly wedded into this prophetic history that the 
autonomy of of um, of Iran is really lost. I think um, one can find them historical materials in it pertaining to Iran, but by planting Iranian history within prophetic history, he's done something quite significant to it, which I argue is to replace a Persian past with a Muslim one. And then the third uh, section in this fourth chapter deals with raising doubts about the past. And I deal a lot here with slander, you know, slanderous ways in which um, pre-Islamic, uh, Iran's pre-Islamic past are dealt with. I should say that the, the two elements that I highlight in the monograph as being subject for forgetting are, um, on the one hand, um, the royal history, which is kept... Um, but it's also undermined in certain ways. So the Sasanians become um, quite stiff figures in a lot of Islamic historiography. There's model ones and there's non-model ones. So Anushirvan, um, the justice of Anushirvan becomes proverbial. But uh, we also hear a lot about the hierarchical tendencies of Sasanian rulers, um, which is meant to be a contrast to the egalitarian tendencies of Islam. Uh, the other aspect for Iran's past that's often highlighted or typically highlighted is the Zoroastrian tradition. And the traditions I look at, I should point out, you have very little sense of other religions apart from Zoroastrianism. And it's just a function of what Muslim writers fixated on. Um, They didn't tend to fixate on Manichaeans um, when they wrote about the topics that I'm highlighting. Um, They didn't tend to fixate on Jewish Iranians Um, So there's a very close linkage that is assumed between Persians um, and Iran and Zoroastrianism, whatever the case may have been, you know, in the period I'm looking at. Christian, Iranian Christians, of course there were, but they're absent from the sources that I'm looking at, largely absent. Um, So that's the fourth chapter. You know, I I take these themes. Then the fifth and sixth chapters take them up further. So the fifth chapter, I deal a lot more with this this issue of raising doubts. And I look at narrative filters that achieve that. And um, amongst these are uh, labeling, ways in which um, you have a labeling um, tendency. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. Creating homologies, fashioning icons, and gendering. These are four categories that I argue um, produce negative um, associations for Iranian history. That chapter is entitled The Unhappy Prophet. <laughs> so to, to use to hone in on hadith or traditions about the prophet that create negative associations for Iran. This issue of labeling uh, pertains to um, a term that's used in Arabic um, that's quite negative um, for Persian epic, uh, which is asatir al-awilin, so fables of the ancient, and lahu al-hadith, so diverting tales, the way I translate that term. And it's to associate... um, Persian, pre-Islamic Persian narratives um, to uh, myth, you know, as as false stories and to trivialize it, really. And I think some of this is probably coming out of suspicions of a competing historiographical tradition. And I make that argument. Um, Homologies, with homologies, I deal with the issue of Mecca and Medina being homologized um, to the Byzantines and the Sasanians. Um, I discuss um, a previous scholar, Nadia Muriel Sheikh, has, has spoken a lot about the homology between Mecca and Medina. And I, I try to, she dealt with it for the purpose of now analyzing what happens to the Byzantines in the stories that circulate. 
um, I deal with it for the purpose of thinking about what happened to Persians and Sasanians. And um, icons, I deal with, uh, if anyone has seen um, the message, the um, Mustafa Akkad film, there's a scene in the very beginning, uh, which of the messages brought to the world's peoples. And I argue that um, I use that as a framing device. And I argue that, well, it's a rather authentic story <laughs> in the sense that the historical tradition does contain stories of these messages. And in them, um, we have the Sasanian ruler always depicted as really a very um, opposed to Islam, ripping up the message. And that this figure of Kisra uh, stands in for the Sasanian royal tradition as a whole, or at least a lot of it. And so I deal with the iconic sort of slander of Kisra. And in the fourth chapter, in the fourth section of this chapter, I deal with the issue of gender and particularly um, what happens with uh, Kisra's daughter. Um, And there's a tradition that says, no people shall prosper if a woman rules over them. So um, this tradition is is manipulated and used um, to explain the downfall of the Sasanians is owing to uh, the period of rule by um, Baran, um, one of the last Sasanian's daughters. So I, I deal with the issue of how gender is used against um, the Sasanians. And these are all, this whole chapter is unified by the issue of dealing with prophetic hadith and prophetic traditions and how they're used um, essentially for negative purposes against Iranian history. And if I can say in the sixth chapter, then I, I focus very narrowly then on um, how the end of the past is asserted using the conquests again. So I go back to the conquests and I talk about the erasure of particular peoples. So um, you have the erasure of families, you have the erasure um, of, uh, well, polytheists is the term. Um, there's a lot on killing polytheists, this term. So the Christian identity of the like of some Iranians is like, oh, is erased in the conquest accounts, I argue. <clears throat> Instead, we have them labeled either polytheists or sometimes Zoroastrians, where maybe they weren't Zoroastrians. And um, particular noble families. So I compare here, I deal with the issue of the conquest of Qum and Ray, sorry, and Ray as well. Okay, so that's, that sort of takes you through the book and its structure. Sure. But to highlight, I mean, just to highlight this issue of forgetting I think is seminal and, you know, forgetting doesn't occur just by leaving things off. <laughs> it occurs by what one does with what exists. And, you know, in the, in the ninth century, 10th, 11th centuries, writers had to do something with what already existed and was known. And so they had options, but they weren't unlimited. And so the strategies that I outline are meant to highlight what they did strategically to achieve the erasure of, of elements of the pre-Islamic Iranian past and early Islamic past. Great. Um, is there anything else you want to add? No, I think, I think that's probably enough. Okay. <laughs> I'd like okay. read the book. I'd like your, yeah. your audience to read the book. We, we, do, we do have to leave some things out. Um, but, uh, you know, now that you've had a chance to, you know, talk about it, um, you know, what kind of, I mean, has this book resulted in any, you know, further projects or what are, what are your next things that you have, you know, that you plan to work on? Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. I'm, well, I'm publishing an article on forgetting uh, that will be out, I hope, next year. Um, Walter Pohl has done an issue 
or he's doing an edited volume in which I, again, push further on this issue of forgetting. And I then, in that case, I, I extend my notion, or I extend Echo's notion of superimposition, and I try to go through the arts of memory um, and propose an arts of forgetting. It's not as playful, perhaps, as Echo, but I think in terms of understanding how forgetting could be achieved, I think produces some novel thinking. Um, essentially, I argue that superposition should be probably separated into three different ways in which you can make um, a society forget. Um, I call them writing over, which includes notions of substitution. So you substitute a name for another name, for example. Um, I speak about crowding out. Um, you swamp memory. You produce, um, you know, instead of having a very simple story, you make it so enormously complex that the elements that one doesn't want a society to remember become lost in, in a mess. And then I speak about abstraction. And these, this notion of abstraction, I take very directly out of the monograph in terms of making icons, labeling, and homology is actually operations of abstraction so that if one has to acknowledge the details of what happened in the past, one can make them so abstract that while to an early generation of readers, you've acknowledged what had to be acknowledged to a later generation of readers, they cease to have the historical specificity and therefore can be um, sort of neutralized if there's a historical, you know, historical story you want forgotten. So that's, that's one trajectory. But um, sort of the larger trajectory is I'm dealing with a problem that I found in the monograph, which was I constantly found myself, I used a lot of digital methods in dealing with, in writing the monograph. I, because I was dealing so much with comparison, I wanted to find as many different stories as possible on, for example, the Diwan of Omar or Salman al-Farisi. And so I used all of the databases that are now available across the Middle East and I would search, and then I would see, you know, what stories I could find. I would try to contextualize them by place and by time, and I would try to look at variations. I always went back to the written sources. I never cite anything in the book without having looked at the printed text, which took me a year to, to fix up the monograph um, just because I had to look at the physical text of absolutely everything, and not everything was easily found. Um, so, you know, in... In the next stage, one of the problems that really troubled me was, you know, if we say this is what exists in our databases and in our printed editions, I, I found myself very troubled by, well, what could be remembered? You know, this issue of, well, I say that they remembered it this way and then they remembered it that way. Well, what were the possibilities? What was the range of possibilities of the way of remembering? And in my next stage of work, I'm using a, a, a new digital method uh, that measures text reuse or the way in which um, you can find common citations between texts. And uh, these algorithms, I'm working with computer scientists, can align matches between texts and then can score them for the precision of the alignment. Um, you can run hundreds of texts um, through the algorithms and create alignments. Um, we're starting now, we're at very early stages, so we're doing maybe one or two texts against another two or text, one or two texts. But some of these texts are quite large. I've compared Tuberi in his Tafsir against Tuberi in his history. I've compared um, works written in Khorasan against those in Baghdad. Um, so you can, I think by tracing out patterns of, of well, some of it's copying, but more neutrally stated um, replication 
of texts, I think you can begin to see the overall form and content of the tradition in an entirely new way. So I'm producing a project that's called Kitab, um, and it stands for, uh, well, the Arabic word being Kitab, but it stands for Knowledge, Information, Technology in the Arabic Book, and that's the acronym. And we are in the grant um, phase right now, get seeking funding, and I will have a team, and we will be using text reuse methods to try to address major questions relating to the generation of books, and by that, the issue of cultural memory in the period. So my, my grander ambition now is to, having seen what I can do in terms of stratigraphy with a monograph, see what I can do about books on a much bigger scale and the tradition of Arabic on a much bigger scale um, using digital methods. So um, we will be developing this over the next several years. It's not a, it's a very long term plan, but I think it'll, by providing, by creating a corpus, corpus and by uh, creating a text reuse tool, we hope to provide um, further resources to our field. And really it's a digital humanities project that I think will make a difference for scholars working on the Middle East. I mean, it definitely sounds like a, it would be a boon to the field, most definitely. And, you know, I think being able to have, you know, incorporate it using such technology just sounds, you know, making it uh, more accessible. Um, sounds like fantastic. So I wish you the best of luck with all of that. Thank you very much. So, um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time here today, Dr. Savant. So I wanted to thank you very much for joining us and discussing your work. I was going to say, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, seeing, you know, what comes of the uh, of the, your upcoming project then. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a delight to speak with you. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us and you have a good day. You too. Thank you for joining us as we spoke with Dr. Sarah Savant about her book, The New Muslims Post-Conquest Iran. Be sure to join us in the future as we discuss more books on the New Books Network Islamic Studies section. Also, be sure to check out other channels on the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us.